And we are continuing the series that was started last week on great hymns of our faith. Now, we're not just going to be talking about the hymns and how they were written, but the passages of Scripture that inspired those hymns and gave depth to their meaning. Um, One of the complaints that often gets lodged uh, today, and I think probably rightfully so, is that some of the songs we sing don't have much depth. And... um, People who want to get rid of the hymns because they're old miss an important part. They're old. Which means they've stood the test of time and they've got a lot of important things to tell us. So we'll be looking at several different hymns along the way. And today we're going to be looking at a song that raised an issue. Uh, Because words are funny things. We use them to describe our feelings, our deepest thoughts. Uh, they can indicate our degree of education or lack thereof. And sometimes these wonderful, wonderful words that we use so much, we start taking for granted. Uh, think about the word love and how much we use it for everything. Everything from I love my wife to I love my dog. And there really needs to be a difference there. Uh, I love Rainy weather, I love, and we use it over and over again and, and take it for granted. We're going to look at a particular word, and Natalie's already alluded it to it today, the word Ebenezer. Now, I want uh, for a moment of honesty, just, and I'll remind you that my daughter tells me that she can't tell anything on me because I tell all of this stuff on me myself. But how many of you, at least once in your life, have sung, come thou fount of every blessing, and you sang out that word of Ebenezer, and you didn't know what it mean, meant. Anybody? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. We, we, the reality is, we don't know what it is until we're told. That line, here I raise mine Ebenezer, here, hither by thy help I come. I don't know how many times I sung that song when I was a kid, and t- I, I just forgot the word. I didn't pay attention to it because the rest of the hymn was so powerful and meaningful. And I hope you didn't let that word distract you too much. But you've already heard today, it is a stone. It's a stone of remembrance. Now, that is not an actual picture of Ebenezer. Obviously, we had no idea where that stone is today. Um, that is Mayan Ilya from uh, Wales. And the thing about it, nobody knows what it's for. It's, it's stood for centuries, and there are markings on it, but it's a lot of speculation of what it meant. And so we're going to take a look at this thing that I will tell you the meaning of the word. So from now on, when you hear Ebenezer, you will know that the name means stone of help. A stone of help. And we're going to look at the significance of this as we move into the text. So I'm going to ask you to stand as we look at today's text together. And it's 1 Samuel 7, 7, verses 1 through 13. I want you to listen very carefully. So the men of Kiriath-Yarim came and took up the ark of the Lord. They took it to uh, Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. Very briefly, let, let me know. 
We don't know who Abinadab and Eleazar are. This is their only mention. Eleazar is a name that shows up often within the Levitical line, so it's very possible they were priests. That might be why that house was chosen. It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained at Kiriath Yarim, and all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of all the foreign gods and the asterisks, and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their bales and asterisks and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel was leader of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord for us, God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it up as a burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offerings, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day, the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far has the Lord helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israel territory again. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now the author of our hymn, Come Thou Fount, was Robert Robinson. He was born into a lowly parent, to lowly parents at Swatham, Norfolk, England, September 27, 1735. His father died when he was only eight years of age, and at the age of 14, his mother sent him off to London to apprentice in the barbering trade, hoping that he could make a life for himself. But for several years in London, Robinson Let's just say he he hung out with some irreputable young men. He was part of a rowdy group. Uh, at one point, they even got an old gypsy woman drunk and forced her to give predictions about them. And she looked at Robinson and said, you'll live to see your grandchildren. And even though she was drunk and it was an act of unkindness, what she said bothered him. And he started thinking, maybe I should change my life. Maybe I'm not what I should be. Well, at the age of 17, George Whitfield came to preach. Whitfield was a very famous Calvinistic Methodist, a partner with the Wesley brothers in 
in a great revival movement. Now, Robinson was actually curious. He wanted to know what this man had to say. But he couldn't tell his friends, I want to go to church. So he said, let's go and we'll heckle Whitfield and the crowd. So they go to the meeting thinking they're going to make fun of all these poor, ignorant Christians. But Whitfield's sermon was so powerful, it had an eternal effect on Robert Robinson. Because not terribly long after that, he confessed Christ as his Savior. Several years later, he felt the call to preach, and he entered the ministry of the Methodist Church. Later, he left the Methodist Church when he moved to Cambridge and became a Baptist pastor. There he became known as an able theologian. He wrote quite a few books, uh, some sermon wells, uh, as well as hymns. He was a man that his psalm, song declares had found God's help, God's fount of many blessings. And he wrote about his discovery. Israel also discovered God to be a fount of blessing. For in the text I read for you this morning, God aided repentant Israel in a moment of dire need. And I believe that God still wants to minister as fount of blessing for his people. So both in this scripture and this powerful song, we can receive a charge to recognize our dependency upon God. Now what does it mean to be dependent upon the Lord? We're going to look at several aspects of that. And the very first thing I really need you to hear that grows out of this text. We need to recognize our dependency upon God in order to find forgiveness of our sin. There is no other way. We need to recognize our dependency upon God for forgiveness. You see, the people of Israel were seeking to come back to fellowship with God. They had lost the ark in a battle against the Philistines. It was recovered, and they brought it to Abinadab's house. Not to Shiloh, where it was supposed to be. And for 20 years, this text tells us it stayed at Kiriath Yarim in Abinadab's house. Now we know, ultimately, it stayed there for about 100 years. Until David was able to bring it safely to Jerusalem. So what does the 20 years mean? During 20 years... The Israelites are mourning. They're in grief. They're in pain. They know that the ark is not where it needs to be because they sinned. They know that they were wrong before God Almighty. And then they start crying out. They're mourning. And this means, this is a sign of, this word is a sign of deep pain. It was going down to the very depths of their hearts. They were mourning because they could not have the, Lord, the ark of the Lord with them. But Samuel warns them. <clears throat> he lets them know, you need more than tears. You need more than grief. You need to find their way back to God. And so Samuel echoes back to something that Joshua once told the people of Israel. Joshua 24, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But 
As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Israel had fallen into a deep, a deeply dangerous form of idolatry. And so Samuel tells him, you need to get rid of the foreign gods in the asterisk. Now asterisk was a fertility goddess, the consort of Baal. And Baal will be mentioned in the text as well. But he's saying all of those foreign gods that you've gathered before you, you need to get rid of. Now why would Israel, who had seen the hand of God upon them, go after foreign gods, these fertility gods? Philip Long points out, it's understandable. When the Israelites were in Egypt for 400 years, they had something the ancient world didn't have. The flooding of the Nile. And every year, the Nile would flood and provide ample water for crops. It was a very fertile place. Now, they're living in Canaan. Do you remember how many times the Bible talks about rain there? Not, not the count. But how, how often the Bible talked about the rain? The early rain and the latter rain. Twice a year, they got rain that was substantial enough to help them be, to grow crops and so forth. So if it doesn't rain, if they go into drought, they're in trouble. And fertility gods? Well, their whole purpose for being was to sacrifice to them and pray to them that the rains will come. By the way, Baal was the Canaanite god of rain and thunder. Keep that in mind. So, this made sense at some level. It's understandable how they would be tempted to specifically worship gods who promised rain. But as understandable as it may be, this was reprehensible to God. Not only were they worshiping false gods, a complete break with the Ten Commandments, but they were worshiping fertility gods, and part of the worship involves sexual indulgence. And it's been pointed out the entire Canaanite way of life was totally opposed to what Israel was supposed to be as the people of God. They were supposed to be living holy lives. They were supposed to be living pure lives. And every time they would go into the, the high places to worship these gods, they threw out what they said they actually believed. So, Samuel called for them to get rid of them. And lo and behold, for once, the people of Israel listened. We're told they got rid of their bales and their asterisks, and they served the Lord Alone. So God, it, Samuel tells him one more thing. We're going to gather at Mizpah. Now we don't know for sure where that is. Archaeologists believe that it was a few miles north of Jerusalem. We're going to gather and we're going to pray and I'm going to intercede on your behalf. When they get to Mizpah, we're told they poured water out before the Lord. There is no water offering in the law. There is no connection that we know of. The best that we can look at are a couple of the passages in 1 Samuel chapter 1 when Hannah is explaining Samuel's mother why, why she is acting so odd in the temple area or in the, the tabernacle area, the place of sacrifice. 
She says, I'm pouring my heart out to God. I'm pouring out my heart like water. My soul is being poured out to the Lord. And in Lamentations, the same image. My heart is being poured out like water. So this apparently, whether it was spontaneous within them, they are pouring out their hearts before God symbolically with the pouring of water. Now, what does this all have to do with us? When our, within our hearts, the burden of guilt can be painfully real. And if you've ever failed God, and everybody in this room has, and the Spirit of God has spoken to your heart, that can be a really hard pain of guilt to deal with. David knew about it. After his sin with Bathsheba, for a year he was able to keep it quiet. But just because nobody else knew, don't think David didn't understand. Psalm 32 is recorded as one of his prayers. And listen what he had to say in verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of winter, in the summer. And this, get this now. He thinks he's gotten away with it. Nobody knows what happened. But God does. And he says, I felt you pressing down upon me. Sapped as in the heat of summer. We live in South Mississippi. We know what he did. And he says, that's what was happening in my life. He was in misery. For a year, he hid it before everybody else until God uses Nathan to, to challenge him and lets him know God knows your sin. But inside he was in misery. Because he had guilt. And he wasn't dealing with it. But there was a remedy. And it is recorded in the very next verse of Psalm 32. It should read 32. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. I finally came and admitted Psalm 51 is traditionally understood as the prayer that David prayed after confronted by Nathan. And I will use that passage of Scripture in my own prayers when the guilt is very powerfully real. So we need to understand only as we acknowledge our need for forgiveness, our need for God's mercy, can we know that we have life-cleansing power? Now, the truth is, we like Israel are called to turn away from those sins that seek to control our lives. We need to understand that. Like Israel, we need to understand without turning to God, there will be no peace. We need to understand there must be confession. So look, when we acknowledge. Now decades ago, Kenneth Chafin said, 
that what we really needed to do was follow Israel's path. And what he meant, we need to give tangible external expression to our confession. I, during the time of confession in a service, during the pastoral prayer, I always use rather broad ideas. I would never point to anyone in this church and say, we need to, we need to repent of her sin. Or we need to repent of his sin and then go into gory detail. But sometimes we do that in our own lives. Quietly. Lord, forgive me my sin. Chafin was saying, we need to give outward, visible demonstrations. And he suggests, just what I told you, to read the scripture aloud in your private devotion. And Psalm 51 is only one of the passages I will use when I am confessing before God. And I will call out to him. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to the multitudes of your wonderful mercy, blot out my sin. I will read other passages as well. I will then go into detail. And this is one of the parts of prayer. When I am alone in my prayer closet, I'm doing out loud. Because that gives, it helps me externalize and really deal with, I have failed. Chafin also uh, argued, maybe you want to write it down in a journal so you can take a look. And then he said, and that's why we come to church. Like Israel, the public convocation, they're repenting from God here in this place among brothers and sisters. We can confess. Sometimes it needs to be verbal if it's been a sin against the church. But together, when we go into songs and talk about asking forgiveness, when I'm praying the pastoral prayer and I'm giving those broad, that's a good chance for you to get very serious and very specific. But it's only as we acknowledge this can we know that we have found cleansing. We are totally dependent upon God here. The world doesn't know what to do with guilt. Now there are false kind of guilts that we can deal with, but here we're talking about honest to goodness. This is what I've done. Well, here we're given example. Confess. Repent. Whatever there is in your life that is keeping you away from God, you need to deal with. We need to put away our veils, our asters. Well, our next need. We need to recognize our dependency upon God in order to find victory in the time of battle. The Philistines somehow find out about the convocation of Israel at Mizpah. They haven't interpreted this as we need to take care of this because nations would often have their armies grouped together just before they started a battle, a war. So we're going to go destroy them. And Israel, in great faith, 
said, praise God, hallelujah, everything's going to be okay. That's not what the text says at all, is it? The Israelites were filled with fear in the face of the oncoming Philistines. They were terrified. They are shocked. They hear and they are crying out. We're in trouble. Now, in all honesty, Israel had not had much success against the Philistines before. In 1 Samuel 4, we are told about a battle that took place. Interestingly, at a place called Ebenezer. Not the same Ebenezer. But in chapter 4, verses 2 through 10, we are told, the Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. So in the battle itself, several thousand. But by the time the Philistines chase after them, 30,000 soldiers are now dead. And, and in the words of Tony Evans, who has such a way of saying things, they didn't have high hopes of escaping another whipping. So they cry out. Samuel, don't stop praying for us. Now there are two ideas here. That idea, don't stop, it means cease not. And the Israelites are saying, we need you to pray, Samuel. We know you're God's prophet. We know He's raised you up. We need you to pray. And we need you to pray to the Lord. So they knew they needed Samuel's intercession, but they knew what they really needed ultimately was the hand of God to move on their behalf. And they're crying out. This was what the Lord was waiting for. He wasn't interested in their crocodile tears. He wasn't interested. He wanted them to truly pray, truly seek Him. And Samuel's response, he did a sacrifice at Mizpah. And he let them know, I am going to be praying for you. I'm crying out to God on your behalf. And the text reads, while he's doing the sacrifice, that's when the Philistines gather up getting ready to attack. And Samuel didn't run and hide. He didn't stop. He knew this is what he needed to do. So he completed the sacrifice. And as the Philistines were getting to come against Israel and destroy them, God voiced out that idea of thunder, carries with it the idea of a loud voice, thundered over the Philistines and scared them. Now keep in mind, Baal is a Canaanite god of thunder. And God uses this method as if to say, I know you think Baal is in control, but you Philistines need to know I am in charge. And they are so frightened, they don't know what to do. They're confused and they're trying to run away. But a real battle took place. The Israelites left Mizpah went after the Philistines, and we're told they slaughtered them all the way down to Beth Car, and we don't know where Beth Car is. The thing is, in 1 Samuel 4, at Ebenezer, the Philistines routed Israel. 
And now, in our text, looking back at that event, Samuel raises a stone and names it Ebenezer. Now I know, the, the, the Israelites probably would remember the defeat at Ebenezer for a while. But overshadowing that defeat was the stone that stood up and said, God has battled for us today. A real battle. And after all God had done for Israel, it would be very easy for us to say, "What well, they should have known not to be afraid. But let's be honest. It is so easy for us to succumb to fear. Do you remember watching a little child when a child begins to walk? Inevitably, what's going to happen when they're first starting to walk, what are they going to do? They're going to fall. And sometimes they're going to fall hard enough to hurt. And right at that moment, a little toddler has a decision to make. Do I risk another fall? Or does the toddler say, I'm fine with crawling. I can get where I want to go. And so I'm just going to crawl the rest of my life. The reality is that child has to overcome the fear in order to walk. And there are a whole lot of battles in our lives that we have to face. And with those battles comes fear. For instance, I know I need to share my faith with my friend. And we're afraid we'll be rejected. I know that I need to stand up for what I believe in a world that seems increasingly hostile to everything I believe. But I know if I stand up for what is true and right, the world is going to hate me. If we come to an understanding that there is a kind of battle going on in this world that goes beyond just what we see, the spiritual warfare that happens. If I engage, we might suffer attack by the very enemy himself. Many years ago, uh, many years ago now, we were getting our duplex apartment ready to move in when Rachel married me. and We'd had a painting party that evening. And after I sent everybody home, uh, I'm alone in the building and I began reading a book on spiritual warfare. It was something I had been encouraged to study, and I was. And so while I'm reading, now folks, keep in mind, you probably won't want to hear this about your pastor, I grew up watching scary movies. I grew up watching scary books. I know what it means to be afraid, because Frankenstein might come out the door. But that moment a presence entered my room. And there was an overwhelming sense of darkness. And it weighed heavy on me. I will go to my grave convinced the enemy of all mankind didn't want me to understand this issue of spiritual warfare. And he was trying to scare me. And about one o'clock in the morning, at the loudest my 19-year-old voice could yell it. I cried out, in the name of Jesus, get out of here. And it was gone. 
I did like to point out to Rachel afterwards. About a week after I shouted that, our neighbors moved. And I'm not sure if there's a connection. Uh, we're afraid. And there are a lot of things. I've known people who've been afraid to go to the doctor because they might find something wrong. Folks, I believe that as we acknowledge our need for God, we can conquer our fear through Him. When I learn to trust Him, I can realize He can do great mighty things in my life if I will trust Him. If I will not let the fear overcome me. We can actually find courage to stand up in the face of fear. The Lord is with me. I know this. And with His armor on us, found in Ephesians 6, we can stand against the very enemy. And in Ephesians 6, verse 13, listen how Paul ends up his discussion. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. The enemy of this world will try to scare us to a point of inactivity. But we need to stand and do what is right, what is true, what is godly, and know that God will help us and we don't have to succumb to fear. And then finally, we need to recognize our dependency upon God in order to find strength for tomorrow. God answered and got me through today and praise the Lord, I'm so happy you did it. But we don't know what's coming next, do we? We have no idea what's ahead of us. We have plans, we have desires, but we don't know what's waiting around the bend in the corner. And this passage reminds us that God helps. When you look, Samuel's words as he erected Ebenezer indicated that he knew Israel would need the Lord God's help again in their lives. Now how do we know he knew they'd need that aid one more time? Because he raises the stone of help and he declares, thus far has the Lord helped us. That can have two possible meanings. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. So God has helped us up until this moment. God has been with us and in this moment He's going to be with us. It can also mean that God helped us here. He helped us here and He's helped us all the way we got to this moment. And the promise is if He has helped us come here to do the battle here, He will help us in the future. And he's not going to start, stop. In other words, right here, facing this militarily superior foe, God intervened on our behalf. And he will clearly help us in days to come. Now, if you know the history of Israel at all, you will know that for centuries they had a lot of different battles, didn't they? The Philistines were ultimately dealt with during David's reign, but then you found the Assyrians and the Syrians and all these different people coming to wage war against Israel. And then verse 13. For a time, 
The Philistines never invaded Israel again. We know they came back during Saul's reign, and we know they came back during David's reign where they were ultimately defeated. But while, and this is by the way, the first place, the first text that says it was at this moment Samuel became the leader of Israel. He became the judge here. And as long as Samuel was acting as the judge that oversaw and took care of God's people, the Philistines said, we're not going to bother them. And we're going to hold off. Samuel wanted Israel to know he would const- God would constantly be their helper. I'm about to use a word that my mother would have frowned on. My grandmother may have washed my mouth out, but it is a good biblical word. It is foolish to think we will ever come to a time when our troubles are over in this world. It's foolish. It's naive. Now, having said that, some of you of my age range will remember the old song, Everybody Plays the Fool Sometime. I have played the fool. I remember experiences in my life that brought me to the place where I was absolutely certain I had arrived. I was God's right-hand man and everything was going to be wonderful from that point on. I remember the moment I first experienced what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God. To have so yielded my life, it was in a time of corporate prayer with my youth group, I so yielded myself to God that there was just an overwhelming sense of being under His control. At the end of the meeting, as we're walking to the cars, a bird flew over my head, and I was just sure it had to be a dove. I am now, I know what it means to be Spirit-filled, and I am Satan, better watch out. There was a time, and I've I've told you about this before, there was a time in my life, for one week, every prayer I prayed was answered within that week. Some of them within hours, some of them in a day, but every prayer. I am praying, and things are happening, I'm thinking, I'm a great prayer warrior. The rush that came into my life, the first time 1 Corinthians 10.13 became real to me, There has no temptation taken you, but such is the common man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above that which you are able, but will make a way to escape that you may be able to endure it. I remember the first time I actually looked for the escape route. I looked for the exit sign. And I had victory. Now perhaps you too have had such experiences. Moments in God you've been touched so powerfully, so real, so meaningfully, that you just knew I have finally come to the place of victory. These these experiences are showing me all that I am in God and, and I am just here and praise God, He gave me all these victories and I will only have victory from here on out until you don't. Until your prayers seem to go unanswered. No matter how much you cry out to the You're not getting the answer that you're hoping and praying for. Until the temptation that you defeated so soundly by looking for the escape route comes back. The reality is, defeat happens. Even to the child of God. 
And if you read the Bible carefully, you will find defeat in every major Bible character there is. We need to remember, as we're thinking about this, we need to remember that life is truly lived, excuse the cliche, one day at a time. We have this moment. And in this moment, we can find that God is with us. He's helped us in the past and He will be with us ahead. Jesus even spoke to this issue. In Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount, 34, He said, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? You need to forget about all the what-ifs that might happen. Right here, right now, this day, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Right here, right now. And you may need to pray that again the next day and the next day, but right at this moment, God has promised to be with us, help us in the future. And we need to learn that a one-time commitment on any given Sunday of your life will not carry you through the rest of your life. So what do we do? We take this moment and we give this moment to God. Lord, whatever's going to happen this day, I know it's not going to happen to me alone. You are with me. And I know, Father, whatever will come to try to frighten me into inactivity this day, You can overcome the fear. Father, even if I fail, even if I sin, I know that You are here because of Christ to forgive me. Let's take this moment of God and give it to God and learn to trust Him in the moments that happen. I believe we need to make a fresh commitment of God every single day out of our lives. Good idea to get up in the morning and say, God, this is your day. Please live it out through me. There are times, times it feels like we need to pray that every hour. But we seek the Lord. So this whole thing about Ebenezer, Remember Robinson? The guy who wrote this the hymn? The line, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, seems to perhaps have been a little bit prophetic about Robinson. In the later years of his life, he had moments of instability. In the later years of his life, he fell to occasional sin. And at one brief time, he actually was accused of Becoming a heretic. People said he's now a Unitarian. It's true that he had a Unitarian pastor friend named uh, Joseph Priestley and that he preached at Priestley's church. And oh, you ought to hear all this. There are a whole lot of stories talked about Robinson. Most of them are not true. But they said that sermon he preached at the Unitarian church He said the Trinity was nothing. It was horrible. It was terrible. And Jesus wasn't the Son of God. And on and on and on. 
But the reality is, shortly after he became friends with Priestley, he preached a sermon within his own church that declared Jesus Christ to be the eternal Son of God. Some people actually think the Unitarians may have started the rumors because Robinson was a pretty famous preacher at this time, and it would have been a it would have been a big thing for them to convert one of one like him. The truth is, we will never know how far the wandering took him. Too many stories to wade through. The, the, the one story that was the, the main idea that I, I knew about Robinson was that one day, he's after, after he's lost his way with God, he's waving down a coach. And there's a woman already in the coach, and she said she will share the ride with him. And he notices she's looking at a hymnal. Very intent. And she starts humming, Come thou fount of every blessing. And she asked, does he, does, does he have any opinions on the psalm, on the song? And it is said that he burst into tears and said, Madam, I am the poor unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago, and I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings I had then. For a long time, that's all I'd ever heard about Robinson. And my understanding was, here was a man who lost his peace with God, who, who went off into the far country and never woke up and came home. Years later, I heard another account of the story. That as he's crying and he's saying, there's no hope for me, the woman said, but you wrote about the hope. And she says, listen, you wrote, here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. You can't offer your heart again to God, Mr. Robinson. It's not too late. And the story goes, he did in fact offer his heart. I want to believe that the man found peace at the end of his life and he was where God wanted him to be. Uh, the only way I will know that for sure is perhaps if I bump into him in heaven. Uh, but what the woman said was true. A wandering child of God can find their way back into the fellowship of the Lord as they trust on the God who has sealed their heart. So, I'm encouraging you, set up Ebenezer's in your life. Set up Ebenezer's. Remembrances. It may be a note that you place on the mirror that you look at every morning. It may be songs that you make a habit of singing out loud, even when you're all by yourself. Or if there's someone with you, you join in together. It, there can be a thousand and different things, marking scripture references, but find ways of setting up things to remind you, thus far, the Lord has helped me. And He will not let me down. We need, we must seek to remember and to affirm the truth. We are totally dependent upon God. We are totally dependent upon God for forgiveness. We are totally dependent on Him for victory in the time of battle. And we are totally dependent on Him for strength of what lies ahead of us, whatever it may be. Totally dependent. And if we learn that, we can affirm a truth of a much more recent song. It goes back to the 70s, but it's still more recent than Come Thou Found. And the song declares, we've been made more than conquerors, overcomers in this life. We've been made victorious through the blood of
Lord Jesus Christ. Today, will you bow with me and with me commit this day into the hand of the God who has brought us this far.